Today on The Accidental Engineer, Mark Weiss, podcast host at Using Reflection. Mark's background includes majoring in English before entering the journalistic marketplace as a beat journalist in New Jersey. These days, Mark is a senior software engineer at Beeswax in New York City, as well as hosting his own podcast similar to The Accidental Engineer. But in this episode, we'll be covering how Mark made such a drastic career change from journalism to engineering. Enjoy. Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we have the pleasure of Mark Weiss joining us. Uh, Mark is senior software engineer at Beeswax. However, he also hosts a very similar to podcast to our own called uh, Using Reflection, which you guys should obviously all check out. Uh, Mark, do you mind introducing yourself uh, and maybe share why I thought you might be such an awesome guest to have on as an accidental engineer? Sure. Uh, so hi, everyone. My name is Mark Weiss, and uh, as Max said, I'm senior software engineer at Beeswax. We'll uh, probably get into a little more what Beeswax does a little later in the show. Um, so I think one reason, there's probably two reasons it makes sense for me to be a guest here, at least on the surface. One is I have a similar podcast, as you mentioned, although I think we'll also get into that a little bit. I think the emphasis is a little bit different, though the audience has a lot of overlap, and there's definitely some thematic overlap as well, content overlap as well. Uh, but also um, for the accidental uh, point of view, which is part of, uh, I think, your point of view of your show, people kind of coming to software engineering from other directions or other angles. Um, <clears throat> I changed careers into software engineering after I'd already been working uh, for several years. So, um, and and that was kind of during the, the dot-com uh, first dot-com boom. Uh, so I've been at it a couple decades now, approximately. Uh, so yeah, so we can get into that as well, I suppose. But um, that's, a, I think, a quick overview of <laughs> overview answer to your question. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to highlight just what you were doing before you started learning how to program. Ah, I think that would be an awesome topic. Sure. Yeah. And in fact, it ties all the way around to the the motivation for me starting my own podcast. I think in many ways that the podcast I'm working on now ties together these different interests and um, maybe inclinations uh, that I have. So my first job uh, after college that I guess I ever list on resumes, there were a couple of really bad early ones, which is maybe a whole other podcast about terrible jobs we've had. (laughs) Um, but it was, uh, I was a newspaper reporter and this was in Jersey city, uh, quite a while back when it was uh, a lot more rough and tumble than it is now. And, um, uh, in fact, if uh, any of the listeners have ever listened to this really excellent podcast, crime town, uh, which the first season focused on Providence, Rhode Island, I thought Jersey city would be an even better subject for, uh, for, for that podcast, but that's again, a whole other a uh, whole other avenue. But but the point being, it was very fun to work at uh, what was still an old school newsroom in a very old school Northeastern machine politics kind of uh, environment city, uh, very much in a post-industrial uh, valley prior to uh, a lot of subsequent, I guess you'd call it gentrification, rejuvenation there. So there was a lot of interesting things going on there. 
And one of the main jobs I had there was being a feature reporter. So I would go and interview just basically arbitrary people that the editor had decided were interesting for some reason. Uh, and it was really eye-opening experience for me because I realized that every person I talked to was really expert at something and knew a lot about something, often what they worked on. you know. But there were also people, for example, who would do things like uh, running this after-school rec center for you know, I guess the phrase you could use is something like disadvantaged youth, like kids who had a lot of, uh, had to overcome a lot of issues, um, on the home front and so on. And just things like that. And these people were so passionate and so expert on things that I knew nothing about. I was, you know, so I went from a background growing up of, um, I mean, my parents, my mom was first generation immigrant, so we weren't particularly privileged, but certainly middle-class. And I went to prep school and then I went to an Ivy league college and I thought I knew everything. And then I took this job and I realized, like, here are these people I would have thought of as like working class or something very patronizing or dismissive like that. And that, wow, they were they knew so much about so many things and I knew nothing. Right. So it's a very uh, powerful, formative experience to me that the world is a much wider place than your experience has been at any point in time and that you can learn from everyone and you should really be humble and open right to learning from everyone you meet. So that was a very interesting experience. So that so that's uh so so anyway, I was kind of in this media space for a while. Uh things were really bad economically at the paper. I actually ended up being like a union organizer there and trying to fight for um better wages and so on and and I could see the writing on the wall. Newspapers were closing all around the country at that time. This is around the early this is like the mid 90s. And um, <clears throat> early to mid nineties, and uh, you know the internet was starting. It was kind of like CD-ROMs and message boards and AOL and CompuServe and all the stuff. If any listeners are as old as me, uh, and then um, the internet was really starting, right? And I realized that like I was in an industry that was not certainly not growing, and it was in fact shrinking. So I kind of made this jump into tech, and I did a couple. I did a really bad, I had a really terrible job uh, where I was making these CD-ROM textbooks when CD-ROMs were a thing from like, I don't know, 92 to 96 CD-ROMs were a thing for the younger listeners in the world. It was a long time. Yeah. I remember it myself. Yeah. I want to put this in perspective real quick that you were also, you had also done your undergrad degree, your college degree. Yeah, in English. Uh, in English. Right. Before entering the newspaper. Right. And business. somewhat aimlessly, really. Like I was in college because it was what I was supposed to do, not because I had figured out what to do. And then I just landed almost by default in English, like a lot of people did, I think. Um, and I still was searching, really. Right. So the, the newspaper experience was really formative. But then I realized that uh, there weren't going to be a lot of opportunities in that industry. And also that there were people at it better than me. Right. So I. I there were people who were just living and dying for their sources and had that hunger for the story and so on. And and I didn't have that. So mm-hmm. I went into this more technical job making CD-ROMs. And um, after that was, the, after that kind of uh, ran dry after a couple of years, um, there are a lot of anecdotes there, but that would be a whole other episode, I think. Uh, <laughs> Um, I ended up back in New York and I was, uh, it was like the dawn of com, right? So I could be like the web guy at this ad agency. And that was the job I got basically just by talking my way into it. 
and knowing like, you know, it cl- open HTML tag, close HTML tag. O- almost literally that's all it took right at that moment. <laughs> was that a, was that a uh, jobs listing that you applied to? Or yeah, yeah, was- yeah. It was like a total just open listing and I went in and met the person. So it's still someone I, I'm in contact with who is a, who is a really good mentor um, in terms of kind of how to conduct yourself in business. But I just talked my way into it. Like I was excited about the opportunity. The opportunity there was hilariously uh, to build like a book content site for AOL when AOL was a thing too. Again, kind of maybe mid to late 90s and then completely eclipsed by the web, you know. But at that time, AOL was actually like um, a totally separate walled garden content network that... um, had a lot, was investing a lot in original content. And that was what was driving its uh, growth of its user base, right? And so this was an early, um, you know, network ad ad revenue-based kind of business model. And um, and they were really prospering at that time. And so that was, uh, that was the project. And then it was also, it was an ad agency. So we would also do uh, small sites for promotional sites for publishers, book publishers, like, for, for promoting books and stuff. So that was kind of how I got into the field. And then from there, I went to barnesandnoble.com <clears throat> following my boss, actually. And I w- talked my way first into like uh, it's kind of content management system stuff with a lot of data heavy backend kind of th- work. And I was just getting more and more technical. And um, I was I realized I love that. So I took some classes. I took a C programming class and a C++ programming class um, at uh a couple colleges in New York, like one just non-credit and then a certificate program. And I was just really hungry for it. And then I talked my way onto the search team at Barnes and Noble. And again, this was an era where there was just such a need. You had all these companies coming into this new technology space. They they weren't necessarily that technical, but all of a sudden they needed to be on the web. And there was a lot of opportunity for people to kind of just get jobs, even if they hadn't had a lot of experience before. So that was kind of how I really got into it. So at that point, I'm on the, I'm writing code for this Barnes & Noble search engine when I had just like learned C++ a minute before, and I had no technical experience prior to that. So that was, I was definitely in over my head, but it was a lot of fun. Um, Yeah. So then that's kind of how I got my way in, right? It was kind of a newspaper to this intermediate media electronic media thing and then all the way in and and along the way realizing that I just was like compelled to do this kind of work I found it really interesting and doing a lot of work on my own on on the side and taking these classes so uh, one thing I should probably ground our audience with is pointing out that Mark is located in New York City uh, albeit the call we're having right now is not <laughs> neither of us are in our our home locations but uh, I think Mark you're our first guest on the show that lives in New York City and works in tech in New York City. Nice. Uh, Blowing it up on the East Coast for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think our audience is curious about is what the job market is like in New York City today, Um, in contrast to your decades of experience with uh, what the job market was like back when AOL was in its heyday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, get out of the nostalgia. Sure. Although (laughs) it's relevant, though, I think New York... um, in a certain way, has a pretty consistent uh, job market from then till now, and and um, the diff. I would say I haven't like ever gotten a job on the West Coast, but 
New York job market is something I've operated in for a long time, and, and it's marked by a couple of very strong characteristics. So one is there are uh, several very strong traditional industries in New York that uh, are always large employers. Um, the largest of those is finance, which we'll return to in a moment, and certainly the um, largest in terms of the salaries they pay and the economic influence they exert. But then there's also all kinds of media and publishing and advertising, uh, mm -hmm. which is sort of a complement to that, are very big industries there. Fashion is a very big industry in New York. And so um, you have all these traditional uh, industries that are big employers, and a lot of the digital and um, tech, whatever term you use for it, a lot of that work and a lot of the startup opportunity is um, uh, comes from those industries, right? Uh, a lot of the innovations might be, you know, innovations in in publishing or uh, fashion, and of course, there's been a lot of fintech the last several years, and so on. So you have a lot of um, a lot of the tech market is kind of either working for those kinds of companies or working for s smaller companies that are trying to disrupt, create a new opportunity, or just create some kind of B two B or app that is like service you know, or platform, whatever, that's like a service to some of these traditional industries, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's in, I guess, in certain ways, a little bit more of a traditional uh, job market. But it's also, I think, it's really dynamic. And it's, I think it's really served well by having these kind of core, these kind of anchor, you know, anchor industries, you could think of them as that have very strong presence. Yeah, I, I think that segs really well into what you're doing now with beeswax and explaining for our audience about how, how older media companies have evolved and uh, make money today in contrast to maybe peddling CDs of content as they did maybe in the nineties. Right. So, yeah, so this is sort of a big topic. Let me think about how to frame this. So well, yeah. we can break it down to just talking about what it is that you were brought on to do at Beeswax. Sure. I mean, we can work our way kind of out. So, and I'll fill in, I guess, background as necessary for it to make sense to the listener. So, um, yeah, so what Beeswax does is we're a platform for buying uh, uh, on internet advertising in mobile or web uh, and what we buy it programmatically this means through you know through server to server automated communication automated systems and essentially what we have is an online auction uh trading online trading system and there are multiple players in that so the basic idea is we're representing advertisers at some level advertisers are folks who businesses who have money to spend and they want to buy ads they want to buy the right to show a message to um, an audience. That's what an ad is, right? And um, in order to do that, uh, what happens is the other side, you have publishers. So let's say you go to CNN to get some fake news and um, <laughs> and there's an, you see there's an ad slot on the page there. And so what happens is the moment you land on the page, uh, some CNN server publishes a message that is like this JSON description of everything about that ad, uh, the page it's on, the subject matter, the, the category, the size of the ad, restrictions, uh, you know, you can't, no drugs, no alcohol, whatever it might be, there's might be restricted categories, all this sorts of information. And there's a standard for this called OpenRTB. There's a protocol 
that defines both a transport and uh, multiple messages and sub-messages and so on, and the fields they have and their meaning and their data types, all this traditional protocol definition for all of this. So um, they send this message out to the world and sort of in between beeswax and let's say CNN, uh, there are layers of businesses that we could distill into the idea of an exchange, which is like the two-sided market maker. So they're receiving the um, the bid requests from the publishers, which are these descriptions of the ads to be bought, and they're receiving the bid. Re- they forward those to buyers such as beeswax, and then beeswax responds with a bid response, and that's like, we want to buy this ad at this price. Here's our bid, right? And like, here's all the information about our ad in case we win. Like, here's the URL of the ad server and everything about the ad. So when we win, please uh, uh, redirect here and arrange to have this ad served to this publisher. So uh, that's kind of at very high level what's going on. Um, So what, you know, under the hood, it gets very interesting very quickly and and very challenging technically. Um, You know, the, the first thing is that to be a player in this space, you need to be dealing with hundreds of thousands of requests a second, if not millions. Uh, and so beeswax is you know, above the million requests a second market peak now. Uh, then the second thing is, you know, you may notice when you go to websites, some sluggishness of ads loading, and you hate that, and the publishers hate that too. So there are a lot of restrictions on how quickly you can respond before you're, you just can't bid on an ad. And typically, that's going to be in the 50 to 100 millisecond range per uh, bid request you receive. Mm-hmm. So you have this very restricted time frame, this very high volume of requests, and then you have to do a lot of complex decision making in order to de- to determine what to bid. So, for example, we have uh, dozens of customers, you know, and they're running thousands, many tens of thousands of campaigns, and a bid request comes in. The first layer of decisioning is we have to just figure out all the campaigns that might be eligible and not eligible to bid right? Like they might have geographic restrictions or content restrictions, or they might have a huge white list of only, we only want to buy ads from these domains or a blacklist of we will never buy ads from these domains and on and on and on. And that's for all these tens of thousands of campaigns. So the first layer is figuring out all the eligible uh, campaigns. Then we have to decide how much is this ad worth to each, each of them and come up with a bid response. And in essence, run our own internal auction to determine like who's our internal winner or winners, mm-hmm. and then send back responses with those bid prices, right? So that's just the the kind of um, first layer of transactional decision making, and that's already you know very challenging and complex. Uh, I guess the rest so, of the business is around. Sorry, go ahead. I I was just going to zoom out for a sec and and describe how frequent this auction process happens. So right. is this happening every time somebody visits a web page like you described on CNN? Yeah, every well, so not all advertising on the internet is bought and sold programmatically, but sure, I think sure. at this point the majority of it is. The other model is like a direct sale model where let's say like the front page of the New York Times with some big splash unit, like custom ad unit type thing, they probably sell that direct for a much higher price, right? But it's expensive to sell direct. You need salespeople and all this stuff. So programmatic was essentially a scaling mechanism for all of this, right? Uh, And so most of this inventory uh, is made available through auction. And um, yeah, and it's so, you know, put a percentage on it. I don't really know, but let's say it's 60% of all ads ever served on the internet or something like that. It's a monumental scale. 
Agreed. Agreed. So two types of ads we're dealing with here. One are these reserve buys where maybe a newspaper like New York Times sells, you know, the banner ad for a day, uh, which is a, a static image that, you know, advertises Star Wars or something. Whereas when you click through on a, on an article, there's a, an auction that's instantaneously held uh, that among others, beeswax receives a notification that, you know, so-and-so is viewing the page. And like you said, here's all these variables about how they're viewing the page. Uh, and you guys have to loop over or, or not loop over, but query all of your uh, campaigns that your customers have set up to determine how much will all of our customers be willing to pay to have their ad shown to this person viewing this New York Times article right now? Right. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, that's <laughs> fair yeah, yeah, yeah. that is a fair high level. Uh, I mean, it's not inaccurate. It's obviously alighting many, many, many details, but it, that at a high level, that is what's going on, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think one of the mind blowing things for our audience to take note of is how that just visiting a web page kicks off so many computers into action. Yeah. There's hundreds of requests on a typical page. Yeah. If you've never used Ghostery, like one way to kind of get a handle on this, one way is just open up developer tools in your favorite browser and just look at all the calls happening, right? Look at the networking tab and just look at all the calls happening. But another way is if you, there's this plugin Ghostery, which is uh, an example of this kind of thing where it tracks all the advertising related calls on a typical page. And it does this, does this little popover over your browser, uh, you know, of like every different domain that's being activated. And a typical page you go to will have 10, 15, 20 or more of these happening under the hood. You know, typical (laughs) ad unit. I mean, so the way that, so the reason for this, you know, there's a couple of reasons for this, but the main reason is that uh, the internet wasn't designed, the web uh, set of protocols, HTTP in particular, uh, weren't designed to support any of this. They weren't designed to support structured in, in, uh, data interchange, which is what you could think of what's happening here, right? So the only mechanisms you have uh, for data storage and data exchange are uh, cookies and URLs. Like, that's it. So the URL spec has two elements that are uh, thoroughly abused for these purposes uh, by the advertising industry. And I don't mean abused in a bad way. I just mean kind of used in ways they weren't originally intended to design for, uh, which uh, are um, query string, right? Well, three, right? So you can have a data payload and a post, of course. That's just built into uh, spec. You can um, have this uh, URL delimiter, and everything after that can be considered sort of key value data, right? We're all familiar with this query string idea. And um, uh, cookies, and that's it. So like all the data exchange has to happen through URL calls. So what hap- the reason you have all these uh, tags, that, as they're called, different URLs firing in an ad unit are because they're uh, multiple different interested parties uh, collecting data, right? Um, you may have, you know, right? So that's the basic idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a lot oh. of the motivation of uh, online advertising is to have better targeting of the user based on their interests. So essentially, a lot of what's happening is trying to correlate, um, you know, who that user is based on their cookie or other identifying information at that time to all this information that's known about the ad that came in the ad bid request, and then recording all this back. So you might send back the user visited this page at this time, uh, and 
you know, to whatever multiple different uh, parties collecting that information. The publisher might be a third party, might be on behalf of the advertiser, and so on and so on. So, and then all this data is getting collected and sort of recorrelated by all these various players uh, behind the scenes to kind of try to have this ongoing picture of your behavior and what you might be interested in. That's that's like a high level why there's all this URL traffic going on. M- much more than is just required just to deliver the ad, right? Although yeah. that that has some complexity too. But yeah. Sure, sure. I, I mean this is this is a a massive topic. Um one of the one of the acronyms that we we threw out there that I don't think we broke down was RTB. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, like Mark said, uh, Beeswax uh, bids in a real-time bidding auction for ads. So RTV stands for real-time bidding in which when you go to visit that New York Times article, let's say, uh, and New York Times queries Beeswax or XYZ other ad network, um, it's not yet decided which ad you'll see. So in contrast to the banner ad advertising Star Wars on the front page of New York Times, this is an on-demand ad that's served up, and uh, the complexity and the volume of uh, auctions that happen uh, day in day out are huge. Um, similar, I mean, I don't know on order of magnitudes whether this is a fair comparison, but I'd guess that there's a lot of uh, perhaps job market crossover between uh, the real-time bidding, advertising, engineering space, and financial markets, perhaps. Yeah, they're they are similar on the surface. Uh, there are some interesting differences. Uh, I won't dwell too too much, but there are some interesting differences. So one is that um, <clears throat> uh, is a little more subtle, and one is a little more obvious. So the more obvious one is that finance has a lot more resources than advertising. Uh, there's just a lot more money uh, to be made, uh, mm-hmm. and, and selling financial products and doing financial deals and. There and the banks uh, have much more money to invest, uh, and I worked in finance at Moody's. It was not not at a bank, but <clears throat> I, I'm somewhat familiar with uh, the space, and um, so I think and, and it's and it's also much more regulated finance uh, as opposed to the internet industries, which are nominally not regulated at all. I would say so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in finance, what you have is a lot more investment in uh, much more strict protocols, much uh, systems that can. Um, deliver correctness much more reliably, 100% correctness much more reliably. Mm-hmm. And also because there's so much money to be made trading, uh, spending very large amounts of money for very small incremental optimizations on things like network latency are very much worth it in certain mm-hmm. in certain contexts. So you have different technology. You just have, I think, a higher level of uh, investment in technology and much more custom technology, right? And proprietary technology. Uh, in contrast, internet advertising is this really, I think, interesting industry that was developed uh, just born of the web. Like it started the minute the web started. And all of it is just using web te- generic open web standards. Not all of it, but basically. And also because it's a big industry, I think 60 billion, 100 billion, something like that in the US uh, this year say 2017 something like that's order of magnitude correct tens of billions right so but that's not that's kind of very low compared compared to finance so there's a lot of money to be made there but at the same time um there isn't the same level of resources also there's much less regulation and all industry players essentially are happy with 
less than 100% correctness. So it's fine. It's typically fine if there are low error rates around 1% or 2% for a lot of different types of transactions. You have all these asynchronous HTTP data flows happening among multiple different businesses. And, and some people are trying to address this with things like blockchain solutions and so on. That's a whole other topic. But the state of the world right now is that it's okay to use inexpensive technologies and have low error rates. And so it's very different in that way than finance. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I think the second way is the actual goods being bought and sold. So in finance, let's say you want to buy a stock, a share of IBM stock, and so do I. Mm-hmm. Um, that share of IBM stock is exactly the same to both of us, right? And any share is is it's totally fungible asset. Any share is exactly the same as any other, right? The only difference is the price you pay. So I mean that's not true. There are classes and so on, but given it's the same class of stock and so on, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very different in advertising. So you as a buyer and I, me as a buyer are this, you could really, the way the auction theory treats us as the same. And in traditional auction theory, there's a global distribution over all buyers and all traditional auction theory operates on that notion. Now that notion is completely broken in, 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 in advertising uh, auctions because every buyer has different campaigns, different messages, different audiences, different audience data different motivations, different budgets, different timeframes in which they're buying. They're spending a fixed amount over a period of time. That's very different than finance. So all of these variables um, are completely different for each buyer. So there is no global distribution. I mean, you can look at it in one sense that there is, but uh, it's a lot harder to draw a straight line to um, what is the theoretically uh, most optimal decision for all participants in the auction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you know because in advertising you're buying the right to show a message your message to a person, so it's not fungible at all. Like your the value of a a, a particular ad slot because it's on uh, CNN Sports and I'm watching it, it, I'm I'm the person who loaded the page might be completely different than to you, you know who is has a finance campaign aimed at uh, widowers right or whatever. Like it just. Sure. Right. Yeah. So it's like completely uh, there's a compl- there's there's all those factors, too, which I think make it like a really interesting and complex problem because so much of it has to do with, uh, you know, your customer use cases and the context and, and so on. So anyway, it's uh, oh, yeah, Agreed. it's like superficially the same as financial auctions, but there are a lot of really interesting differences um, that I think make it a it's not just like a like Getting to how you model optimization in advertising, I think, is a lot more challenging, I guess, would be a, maybe a mathematical way of talking about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the other uh, – you, you mentioned fungibility, but one of the other things about a ad impression is that it's very fleeting. <laughs> when you buy a stock, you have that stock. When you show an ad to somebody, you, you may have a permanent effect on their brain and their and their consumer behavior, but – it's uh, it's highly highly speculative. That's uh, really true, right? So when you buy the the financial asset, it doesn't have this decay, right? The the, the ad has this extreme decay over time, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's no, interesting. I I think by measure of volume of uh, throughput that you guys handle at Beeswax and what you've what you've uh, leverage your C++ skills towards and all the various free softwares out there for dealing with such high volume throughput of data. Um, I think a lot of, 
I know a fair amount of people that, that are have jobs in finance and software engineering. Uh, there is there is some crossover of tools that get developed in uh, servicing the media ad uh, business and what ends up getting used in. Uh, oh, in for finance. sure, for sure. Like at the at the library level and language level, I bet there's a fair amount of crossover. Like we're using libraries from Google and and Facebook and other you know high performance C plus plus libraries. There's uh, but then, you know, like they're dealing with different protocols and they're dealing probably with uh, their de- their development tool chain is potentially different. I don't know if they're all deploying into AWS for everything sure, they sure. do. Yeah. Uh, so, but so yeah, for sure. The, 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 one of the big topics that I wanted to chat with you about is why podcasting? Because uh, the way that both me and Mark found each other was our mutual interest in podcasting and having very similar type content on our podcasts. So um, do you mind sharing for our audience what using reflection is and what you're trying to accomplish? Sure. Of course. (laughs) Uh, Never uh, shy away from promoting it. So the idea I think is that uh, engineers all have stories to tell and we love to tell those stories. And First of all, second, that there's, I think there are a lot of podcasts, technical podcasts that focus on specific uh, technical areas, uh, languages, technologies, um, environments, industries, um, but that there aren't as many that focus on what I think of as the human side. So um, how, what we learn uh, by working with other people, what we've learned about ourselves through our engineering work, uh, what have we learned that works well, uh, and also just why do we think engineering is important to society, um, and and why we do it, why we love it personally, why we love it. So those kind of personal motivations and personal reflections are what um what I'm trying to focus on, and uh, the you asked about the name earlier, mm-hmm. uh, so the name is a play on that. So the idea is that through having these conversations, we can reflect on our own personal, I guess, engineering journeys. And also, of course, it's just a bad pun uh, <laughs> on like the language feature of being able to introspect or in Java, it's I guess it's called reflection. The idea of being able to write code that looks at the code itself uh, and what, you know, uh, you can write code that asks a class what methods it has and so on. Uh, this kind of idea. So it's just kind of a bad pun on that. The idea is to have like this tech pun, but also reflect the underlying theme of uh, of the show. And so that's the goal of what I'm trying to do there. For any of our audience members who are going to check out your podcast for the first time, is there any uh, any episodes that you recommend people start with so far? Sure. Uh, let's see. That's, that is a good question. Well, there are a couple West Coasties, a few West Coasties, which maybe that's good for the audience I'm speaking to. The first one is actually really out there and really excellent, although the audio is a little choppy. Uh, but it's with my friend Eli Goodman, who's um, VP at uh, Headspace, which is an LA startup. Mm-hmm. And that's a really fun one because it gets all into kind of deep philosophy about uh, continuous delivery and how it really helps control the rhythm of the team and all these. It's interesting. Um, some other good ones, uh, like kind of the all-star ones. The second episode is with uh, Jesse Davis, who's big in the Python community, spoken at PyCon. He's contributed to Python, and he's been a Mongo senior engineer for a long time. Uh, other West Coast one that I think is really fun is Eleven, 
episode 11 with Andrew Marsh, who's CTO at Interviewing IO. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just really bright. And there's a lot of, uh, he was in the gaming industry for a long time. There's a lot of stuff about that. And then kind of um, how he, uh, how he, why he left the gaming industry because he got tired, I guess, of uh, the addiction aspects of it. I think maybe my two, two of my favorites, just two more that are really favorites of mine uh, personally. Um, I think it's seven is uh, with uh, um, Jenny Young, who runs a, a school in New York City that is called uh, it's called Brooklyn Robot Foundry, and they teach kids robotics, and it's awesome. It's like just an it's an awesome pro- uh, you know program they have, and it's a really fun interview all about uh, her mechanical engineering background and how she why she started the school and how great it is to teach kids to make robots, which is just like a really fun topic. Um, and then maybe episode eight, uh, with my friend Hayden, who is, who's kind of a gaming refugee also, he's in FinTech now and just goes really deep into his philosophy of why gaming is so profound and why it's a metaphor for learning and life and all this. So that's, and you know, those are some examples of what I try to get to where I'm really trying to dig very deep with people on their personal story and their motivations and how that led them to this engineering path, right? What is this personal engineering path they've had? Um, and you know, it goes all the way back to what I, uh, when we talked about the start of my career, how every person is really expert on these things that, you know, like their own life basically, right? And you can learn so much from them by have, by talking to them about their own life. Uh, and so I'm really trying to tie that together with my love of engineering and my experience now and working in various different jobs for a long time and having a lot of conversations with people about the work and why we love it why we suffer with it, uh, and all of that. <laughs> so I, I want to mention to our audience that you guys can obviously check out all of the links to the various things that Mark is mentioning in our show notes. Um, as I think it, uh, it'll be a lot easier <laughs> to, to find some of the mentions like the, the robot school in Brooklyn. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We'll make sure we, right. We'll make sure we have uh, all this in the show notes lined up for you, how to, how to find the show on iTunes and Google play the website, uh, web directory of all the episodes, all the the blog, all that stuff for sure. One of, one of the things I'm curious about with being in such a similar space in the podcast is whether there's variations in the podcast format that you're interested in doing in the future. Like, do you see do you see uh, using reflections being a uh, being the same type of storytelling format going forward, or do you see at some point uh, perhaps getting into more heavily editing? or uh, multiple stories in a single episode type of a format? Right. It's interesting. I I have kind of thought about what are some ways to expand or improve the content. Uh, I think the first one is a rather banal observation that I've gotten feedback from a few people on, which is that just having a little more prep and having it be a little, more free, little less freeform helps. So in other words, not just pressing go and having the person talk about their life but having reviewed kind of their narrative a little bit. And, um, but, but beyond that, I have thought about this. So I've been thinking about, well, this theme of um, the, the human impact of engineering is a broad theme and maybe too broad, but that it could be used to uh, do things like have panel conversations more on a topic. Uh, you know, for example, like the impact of AI on employment, like some, that's very broad, but some, some more uh, specific 
kind of topic like that and try to get guests on who could speak to that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, rather than just telling their story, but maybe a little bit more topic focused. So that, that has been something I've been, been thinking about. Um, and also guest, maybe having other guest hosts. Um, certainly. Yeah. You know, like I had my friend VJ, uh, who's, uh, he works now at this keen, they're called keen home. They're doing I home IOT home and home automation, like smart home kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, he knows a lot about, he's worked in embedded system kind of stuff for a long time. And I don't know as much about that. And also he's hilarious, right? So uh, <laughs> he maybe have guests uh, who uh, who do their own thing. I know that's something like I'm a big fan of Software Engineering Daily. And he's that's one way he's been expanding the platform a little is by having guest hosts on. Um, yeah, so maybe those are two ideas I've had. I don't know if those are amazing ideas, but uh, there they are. <laughs> well, I mean, if our audience wants to weigh in, of course, you guys can get in touch with Mark. Um, yeah, awesome. Through the show notes. Uh, I mean, I, I think the the multiple or the more than two person uh, panel type discussion where you're discussing a topic is a great idea. <laughs> I'd love to participate or vice awesome. versa. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've thought about it myself. Um, it yeah, be maybe we could maybe we could put our heads together and try to put something together like that. That would be fun. Yeah, if people in our audience have suggestions about topics, we're all ears, obviously. Um, but otherwise, Mark, I, I think we will do this again <laughs> for sure. Cool. Awesome. Uh, I think this is awesome. I think uh, you're a great guest to have on as an accidental engineer. I mean, your background going into uh, newspaper journalism and uh, your your path through the the CD content business and AOL and ultimately, where you're at now in in media advertising, I mean, I, I think for our audience who are at various stages in their career, um, should really consider looking at your LinkedIn, for example, and seeing um, how how to how to reach the successes that I think you've you've reached so far. Um, oh, thank you. So yeah, of course, people can find me. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn at Marcus Weiss and. Um, yeah, and the 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 podcast is usingreflection.com. There are links there to everything. But um yeah, thanks so much uh for having me and and you know, I know we talked about you coming on my show, so we can uh hopefully we can do that soon. Sure. And absolutely. Bring, bring bring the audiences together, right? Absolutely. That sounds awesome. great. Cool. <laughs> I'll uh I guess we'll sign off. Great. Thanks, for thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Mark and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of video interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. Thank you.